Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. Today I'm joined by Logan Coleman. Logan is a program manager at PADF, the Pan American Development Foundation. She leads the programming for refugees and migrants, and most of her time and effort is spent on the regional Venezuela response. Prior to working with PADF, Logan served as a Princeton University scholar with the U.S. Department of State, where she also focused on Venezuela policy. Of the approximately 5.4 million migrants that have left Venezuela, around 150,000 have settled in the Caribbean region. Aruba, Curaçao, the Dominican Republic, Guyana, and Trinidad and Tobago hold the highest numbers. Though often overlooked in this region, the difficulties faced by these Venezuelan migrants are enormous and require coordinated international response. Logan, thank you for joining us today to talk about this often overlooked topic. Yeah, Margarita, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited in particular to have the opportunity to speak to the situation of Venezuelans in the Caribbean, uh, specifically in those five countries you mentioned. You cited a number, 150,000, and I know kind of to the average listener out of the over 5 million Venezuelans throughout the region and Europe, that, that might sound like a small number, but I really think it's worth highlighting that for these countries, in terms of proportion to population size, that's quite huge. According to the Organization of American States, the total number of Venezuelan migrants may reach 7.1 million by the end of 2021. Most of the international response has focused on very large migrant populations in neighboring countries like Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. But Caribbean countries are also in need of international support. And as you mentioned, though these countries have received fewer migrants in aggregate, the migrant populations in the Caribbean countries now make up a large percentage of their total population. So, for example, in Aruba, 17,000 Venezuelan migrants make up 16% of the total population. Logan, what are the main vulnerabilities that Venezuelan migrants, particularly women and youth, face in the Caribbean? Sure. So kind of out of those five main receiving countries in the Caribbean you mentioned, I think it's worth highlighting right off the bat that in four of those five countries, Venezuelans arrive without knowledge of the local language, which is either English, Dutch, Papamiento, and really without knowledge of the local culture and exacerbates in a lot of ways the challenges Venezuelans face in the Caribbean versus some of those other receiving countries in South America. I'd also add, given the percent of the population that they're coming to comprise in these countries, it's made their absorption into the social safety nets of these countries and access to basic services all the more problematic. In Trinidad, Venezuelan children are still not able to access public education. So it's really challenging. I would also add that kind of unlike some of the South America counterparts receiving Venezuelans, many of whom have had a long history of knowledge of protection issues as a result of the conflict in Colombia, having previously received Colombian refugees or in the case of Colombia, internally displaced persons. 
the Caribbean has a far less robust history of dealing with international protection concerns. And the migration that they've had in the past has been within the Caribbean, where there's a bit more cultural affinity, and migrants have primarily been of an economic background. You have a really mixed bag in terms of these countries and who has signed on to the 1951 Refugee Convention and the 1967 Protocol, which means that the legal infrastructure that they have in place to determine refugee status and provide asylum processing is really quite limited. And unfortunately, this means that a majority of Venezuelans arriving to the Caribbean find themselves without an irregular status because even the migratory policies that they had in place were just not designed to deal with these kind of humanitarian sizes of flows. So this lack of status and lack of legal framework, I would highlight as the main vulnerability of Venezuelans because it really poses a gateway challenge to all of the other sectors that they might need to access. It becomes difficult, if not impossible, to access public health care. In the case of Trinidad, as I already mentioned, there's challenges with education. Livelihoods is another key issue. People can't access work permits. Even in cases where they are able to get some sort of registration document, that still prohibits legal authorized work in a lot of cases. The other thing I'd want to mention about the routes that Venezuelans take to arrive to the Caribbean versus South America, I think really gets at the core of a lot of the protection issues that they face in these countries. As you all know, a lot of these countries, with the exception of Guyana, are islands. So really, and especially during COVID-19, for Venezuelans to arrive to these countries, they're frequently taking maritime routes. These are boats that they kind of take their chances on with others that they might know, hoping to arrive safely on land. But in a lot of cases, due to the desperation of the states within Venezuela, which these migrants are coming from, they frequently fall prey to smugglers and traffickers that are looking to profit off of this desperation and ensure those maritime routes. So for women and children, taking these trafficking and smuggling routes, oftentimes they'll face protection violations in transit to their destination countries, meaning that they kind of arrive and have already faced these challenges, are already in need of psychosocial support, shelter in a lot of cases, and on top of that now are not able to gain status. In a lot of these countries, because they don't have these legal frameworks and aren't confined by the 1951 convention, we've unfortunately seen this result in a lot of refoulement. So non-refoulement is a policy or an international norm included in refugee law, which basically says if a person has a grounds for asylum, that host country is not and should not be able to send them back to Venezuela. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of maritime deportations happening from these countries, which is a violation of an international norm. Logan, how have response priorities been adjusted to take into consideration the new needs of these migrants during the COVID-19 pandemic? Because we view legal protection as kind of the biggest barrier to many of these other responses, that is primarily since the beginning of the crisis, which I'd say for the Caribbean really started in 2018. That's where humanitarian actors had always been focused. I wouldn't say that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to shift away from that. However, it's really shed light on how those protection gaps have amplified much more humanitarian needs of Venezuelans in the Caribbean during the crisis, including food insecurity, the lack of access to healthcare, as I mentioned. And in a lot of cases, because of an inability to gain wage income during this time, even if informally, we've seen really big crises in terms of housing and evictions. 
Unfortunately, with trafficking and GBV, as I mentioned, we've seen an uptick of this during the COVID-19 pandemic because there's no longer an option for flights, which previously people might take a flight and overstay a visa. People have really needed to resort towards those maritime routes, as I mentioned. And trafficking and gender-based violence aren't just things that have increased in transit to these countries, but actually in host countries as well. So intimate partner violence, for example, reached a peak in Trinidad over this past summer. And that's something we've actually seen throughout the region, including in South America, as people are kind of forced to live with their aggressors for prolonged periods of time and don't have those social outlets that they need. Similarly, Women and even adolescent girls have been forced in a lot of cases to resort to survival sex to be able to make ends meet, given their inability to access jobs during this time. Venezuelan migrants and refugees are often with lack of documentation and limited knowledge of their own protection rights, making them much more vulnerable to exploitation. What sort of programming is being done to help increase their access to legal status and protection mechanisms? Sure. So it varies a lot at the country level, I would say. UNHCR has played a big role in these countries in trying to provide capacity building and support to establish these legal frameworks. And where legal frameworks kind of aren't possible or are a slower process, set up sorts of at least regularization pathways for persons to gain some sort of status. So I would like to highlight two examples from the Caribbean that might be useful in seeing how host countries, with the help of international actors, have sought to adjust and kind of where the gaps remain. In Trinidad, which I think frequently um, receives more negative criticism in a lot of ways than some of the other countries, did in fact in 2019 launch one of the first registration campaigns for Venezuelans in the Caribbean. And what this basically did was open up a two-week window during 2019, during which Venezuelans with irregular or regular status could basically show up, register for a six-month stay, which would enable work authorization, and have the ability to extend this stay. They actually just in March this year, launched a second registration to re-register and check in on these persons and it closes tomorrow, almost everyone has been able to successfully re-register. So this is a step in the right direction and in terms of encouraging people to come out of the shadows, but it really does only set up a short-term protection. In the case of Guyana, who is working very closely with UNHCR to build the capacity of their asylum processing, they were actually the first country, not just in the Caribbean, but in Latin America, to launch UNHCR's PRIME system, So this stands for the Population Registration Identity Management Ecosystem, and it's essentially a digital platform designed by UNHCR to collect the biometric information of people forced to flee and in need of basic services that frequently, and especially in these vulnerable cases we see arriving via maritime routes, show up without any documentation whatsoever, even proving that they're Venezuelan. So this gives them a way to be recognized in the system and eventually be able to adjust and access much-needed support. This is a particularly useful tool for indigenous populations, which make up a large proportion of persons fleeing to Guyana and Trinidad, as even while residing in Venezuela, they may not have had this registration. So this is kind of some of the more top-down, legal, long-term programming, which is obviously the ideal scenario to ensure institutional changes are met. But there's a lot being done by international actors and local civil societies to meet some of the legal status and protection needs in the short term. 
I'd highlight, for example, that in countries with absent legal frameworks, such as Curaçao and, and Trinidad, local legal organizations have really been the protagonists in assuming litigation cases in an attempt to establish legal jurisprudence and cases pertaining to legal status, including victims of trafficking and other egregious abuses like this. So this is really critical to setting an eventual foundation for those macro level changes. I'd say the other thing that is really critical is just assuring people have the information on what their rights are and not just have the information, but have it in their native tongue. So a lot of what civil society and humanitarian actors have been doing is proactively reaching out to these persons and also engaging other ministries outside of migration, such as the ministries of women, ministries of education, to ensure that there's heavy emphasis on dissemination of rights and referrals pathways that do exist within the country. Great. Let's shift gears slightly. Let's talk about gender-based violence. Gender-based violence remains a concern across the region, particularly for women, girls, and LGBT individuals. Migrants are especially vulnerable. I would like to ask you two questions. First, why is it so important to use a gender lens when addressing programming for Venezuelan migrants And second, how can programming address the gaps in gender-based violence prevention and response for those irregular status who may fear officially reporting incidents? Gender, and really more specifically, gender inequality throughout the region is a relevant lens at all nodes of the migration process. I mean, gender can influence the reasons one chooses to migrate or is forced to flee in the first place. It can determine who has the resources to take this journey and how far those resources will take them. But gender also plays a role in determining what networks and opportunities people have upon arriving to a destination country, with expectations really different for men and women at the family and societal level as to what's possible. So I really feel that if those involved in migration responses don't take these differences into account, we can make the mistake of perpetuating already really pervasive inequality amongst the most vulnerable. In the case of displaced Venezuelans, all of that rings true. Displaced women and children, especially single female heads of households and indigenous women, live in a state of vulnerability and marginalization and frequently find themselves in the Caribbean with limited access to non-exploitive work and housing and face growing xenophobia and discrimination, particularly compared to men, women face this a lot more in the Caribbean. The COVID-19 pandemic, as I mentioned earlier, has only exacerbated this. Gender-based violence has increased as an initial push factor. As we've seen, this has increased throughout the region. So this is potentially an increased push factor that women and children have been forced to leave Venezuela. And as they depart their homes and are in transit, they've become even more vulnerable over the last year due to the rising role of traffickers and smugglers and the need to rely on irregular routes. And I think it's also worth highlighting that in the Caribbean of all registered, which tends to really underestimate likely the true number of survivors of trafficking in GBV, 70% of those registered victims in 2019 were Venezuelans, and that number was almost 90% in the case of Trinidad. Lastly, I would just mention that in-country, we've seen a lot of reliance on survival sex uptick since the beginning of the pandemic. And similarly, Even in cases where people are able to access work legally, with paperwork, without paperwork, there's a lot of sexual exploitation that's going on in the workplace. So that's another challenge, I would say. In terms of how programming can address these gaps, 
particularly for those with irregular status that might fear kind of coming out and reporting these incidents. I'd say a first step is increasing the collaboration and coordination between, on the one hand, those involved in the humanitarian response for refugees and migrants, so your INGOs, UNHCR, IOM, local civil society organizations engaged in the response, and on the other hand, existing local structures that have been working on GBV. I mean, GBV is not an issue that's specific to Venezuelans, but they are at increased risk for it. So by linking the humanitarian response to durable structures already in place, we can increase the longevity of the interventions and create structures for cross-referencing. In many cases, Venezuelans are far more willing to come out to diaspora networks, for example, with these cases or local organizations in their communities, but wouldn't necessarily go to a state entity with that information. So if we're able to create that space for collaboration, we can fill that gap of the cross-referencing. I'd also mention that in a best case scenario, you include those diaspora groups in these engagements because they can speak most closely and most accurately to the situation Venezuelans are facing in the moment. I'd also say it's really important to ensure that gender-based violence services are proactively made available to refugees and migrants to ensure that people who might otherwise fear reporting these incidents are given the opportunity to do so. This is especially important in the hard-to-reach areas of some of these countries. In Trinidad, for example, indigenous populations are arriving and then settling in the south. And similarly, many people arrived from the very rural regions of Guyana, where some of these services might not be as in place because GBV services had been provided in urban areas. So extending these services to these remote areas and in a proactive manner is really kind of the onus on humanitarian and state actors to make sure that populations have the information on how to report, as well as the services needed to do so. A tool we use at PADF actually to do this in more of the remote communities is work closely with diaspora networks, as well as host communities to establish community protection networks. So frequently we'll help form women's networks, for example, that can become the first point of contact for those that might fear approaching formal state services. There is certainly no easy solution. What can host countries do to address the challenge? I guess without sounding like a broken record, I'll gloss over this quickly, but really addressing regularization of status procedures and adoption of safe migratory routes is the first and best step host countries can take to addressing GBV vulnerabilities that Venezuelans face. But outside of those frameworks for legalization, I think there's some other kind of more short-term steps that host countries can take to strengthen their responses to GBV and TIP, not just for Venezuelans, but also for host communities. And we've actually seen in some of the more challenging, I guess I'll say, political contexts, focusing on GBV and TIP has been a really strategic point of entry in terms of collaboration with state authorities because they recognize that this is a issue afflicting the whole country. So I'd say one of the steps host countries can take is increasing the resources and capacity of their legal units to investigate, prosecute, and convict traffickers. In particular, it's really important to ensure there's not a backlog in this system because time is of the essence in a lot of these cases. And if actions aren't taken quickly, traffickers will have moved on and you'll really lose the opportunity for a successful conviction. Part and parcel with increasing resources of the legal units is ensuring at the same time that victims are supported throughout these legal processes to ensure their protection. So providing secure accommodations as these cases are carried out is really essential to protecting victims from fear of reprisals, 
and can do a lot to ensuring that they actually come forward with this information if they are able to be guaranteed that they'll have a safe place to reside. Similarly, ensuring that they're able to offer private video testimony rather than testify publicly in these cases is another tool that should really be standardized across the legal processing of these cases. Outside of investigations, I'd say it's equally necessary to train a diverse array of law enforcement and non-specialized prosecutors in GBV and TIP. So again, I, we're getting back to this idea of increasing the protection network and diversifying those that are attuned to these issues. And I'd also include, besides law enforcement, the service providers, local civil society groups, diaspora networks. You don't know who a given refugee or migrant will feel comfortable sharing this information with. And it frequently could be someone at a school. It frequently could be a health provider. And so ensuring that across the range of sectors and types of actors, everyone is able to recognize some of these clues and understand the referral process for GBV and TIP cases is really a space for coordination that host countries should be focusing on right now. And then lastly, I've mentioned a couple of times the particular issues with exploitation in the private sector and in labor markets. So I'd say that it's really important that host countries take this seriously and strengthen the oversight, regulation, and inspections of private labor recruitment agencies, as well as domestic work locations. Because really, sadly, a number of the GBV and TIP cases do occur under the auspices of formal employment opportunities. And so I think this will help in not just fostering adequate responses for victims, but playing a larger role in prevention of future abuses if businesses see that this isn't something that is going to be permitted in the future. Turning to PADF's own work, the foundation recently developed a children's book titled A Story of Hope, recounting the story of a Venezuelan girl's journey to Trinidad and Tobago. What was the reasoning for publishing this book and what social challenges does the book seek to address? I'm so glad you brought this up. We love a story of hope. It's on our website. It's free to download. Really hope everyone goes and takes a look, but thank you. So a large part of PADF's work for refugees and migrants outside of provision of direct services really focuses on creating pathways for Venezuelans to be able to sustainably and peacefully integrate into host communities. So on the one hand, we've been able to achieve this by ensuring vulnerable host communities and local populations have the ability to access all the assistance being provided to migrants. But even more critically, this entails working with communities to build understanding and empathy between migrants and their host communities so that we can help to reduce trends towards xenophobia and especially bullying among children, which are sadly prone to occur and we've seen increase under COVID-19. So Story of Hope was one such effort to foster greater understanding of host communities toward the situations of Venezuelans in the Caribbean and push back against a really often used narrative that Venezuelans are simply economic migrants or can be treated as one homogenous unit. Specifically, Story of Hope focuses on the arrival of a young girl named Gabriela, as you mentioned, and her mother in Trinidad and Tobago. It walks readers through the push factors that cause them to flee their country, the challenges they've endured upon arrival, particularly as pertains to xenophobia and narratives, and really in an ever so gently way, because this book is geared towards children, the arduous sea arrival that many migrants take to arrive to Trinidad. It was actually um, portrayed through a dream. To ensure the book captured the real lived experience of Venezuelans while at the same time fostering compassion from host communities, 
What PADF did was help to facilitate focus groups in the creation of this book, uniting young Venezuelan and Trinidadian youth to develop the plot, the protagonists, and the themes that were included. Even the translation work was penned by one such Venezuelan that was part of the focus groups. So this collaboration to arrive at the storyline was in and of itself a space to increase community exchange and engagement. And now we have this book, which can be used in local classrooms and community centers, which is really the idea in order to socialize young readers on the issue of migration and help to create ground up community integration. PADF oversees a wide range of programming for migrants throughout the region, ranging from women's empowerment and business workshops to handicraft training and psychosocial support. Could you please walk us through one or two recent PADF projects that you think showcase the organization's efforts to assist migrant women? And also, what results have you been able to observe? Definitely. So I think I'll speak specifically to gender-based violence because I think our approach has been pretty unique in this. So when you hear about gender-based violence programming, you'll often hear three verbs used, identifying GBV, responding to GBV, and preventing GBV. So while PADF does a lot of work in both Guyana and Trinidad, which are the two countries in the Caribbean that we currently program in, to identify and respond to needs of victims, including psychosocial support, food assistance, shelter, as you mentioned, I'd really like to highlight and reiterate the importance of our prevention work. So beyond these direct services, PADF seeks to elevate the participation of women and teens in programming to help build their resiliency of falling prey to GBV. This isn't to say that only being in school will protect you from GBV or only being able to gain a wage income will protect you from GBV. But we do think it's a critical avenue for Venezuelans to be able to build their social capital and social networks in order to kind of be a bit more resilient to this. So in Trinidad, for example, we're currently working with a local Venezuelan diaspora network called TTV Solidarity Network, Trinidad and Tobago Venezuela Solidarity Network, on an initiative called Cosido con Amor, which in Spanish and translated into English is sown with love. So the Cosido con Amor initiative brings together women from both host communities and Venezuelan women to improve their sewing and seamstress skills through the provision of capacity building workshops, as well as soft skills training, essentially helping women to increase their employability in what's a very highly demanded sector in Trinidad. And where women have entrepreneurial aspirations, aiding them at the end of their graduation from the program with in-kind seed capital distributions in the form of sewing machines. So this has really been a wonderful outlet for women to have, both socially during COVID-19, when you ask about results, to engage with one another, give them a safe space to continue learning and having an outlet. But similarly, this has been a really great way for women to be able to earn a wage income. For example, people have been sewing bags. They've been able to learn how to sew masks. Masks have obviously been in demand. People were very sick of the paper masks. So there's really beautiful kind of colorful prints with both Trinidadian flags, Venezuelan flags that have been sewn. And this has really helped during COVID-19, even for women without legal authorization to work, to be able to make ends meet. So yeah, that's one such example. Another example where we seek to kind of build these skills is in Southern Trinidad, we actually work with an organization called I Am Movement with the indigenous Warao women arriving to Southern Trinidad. They bring a really interesting knowledge base of weaving with wet vetiver grass from Venezuela. And so what we've sought to do 
is help these women to have a space to continue this sort of livelihood in Southern Trinidad and even worked with them to create a vetiver grass nursery so that the materials are there. And they've similarly been able to make products with these seed capital investments and trainings that have really served as a cushion during COVID-19, which we've seen has just deteriorated incomes across the region. Logan, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me here on 35 West. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.